If you have a Bible, please open at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As you're doing that, let me congratulate David, Glenn, and Lewis. Uh, it's our great privilege, I think I speak on behalf of us all, our great privilege to be here uh, and to be part of this service. And it's especially good uh, to see David looking so well. I'm sure you agree. In fact, I think you're looking healthier than everybody else in the commission um, and in the congregation, for that matter. Presbytery have asked me to um, convene this ordination commission and to preach the charge. And it's, a, it's been a privilege for us as a commission uh, to be involved in the two interviews that we've had with you three men, to hear your enthusiasm uh, about the training and your enthusiasm about this great opportunity that you've been given to serve as ruling elders in his church. And so for this sermon charge, I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, especially verses 6 to 12, but a brief look at the first uh, six verses. Why? Because I, I think we have in these verses a powerful picture of a model leader. And that's what you are elders, leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 1, we're given there a picture of a model church, and I'm sure Hill Street longs to be such a church as is laid out in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, we have the picture of the, the model leader. Now, leadership in the church, as in every other area of life, is crucial. It's the steering wheel of the car. It's the coaching staff of the team. And Paul, joined by Silas and Timothy, at this stage is being savagely attacked. He's facing toxic criticism with enemies seeking to discredit their beliefs and their practices. And while Paul and Silas and Timothy ministered to an audience of one, they owed it to the church and to us to defend their character and their reputation. And in doing so, Paul being the, the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in doing so, Paul paints this beautiful, powerful picture of a good and spiritual elder or leader in the church. Now, we all can learn from this Whatever our role in life is, whatever our role in the church is, you could be a parent or a grandparent. You might be a Sunday school teacher or a servant in some other ministry. This is for, for us. We all learn tonight. So this charge isn't just for these three men. It's for us all. All can learn, and all should learn. Before we get to the, the activity of the model leader, as spelt out from verse 6 to 12, just a quick look at the first six verses, because I want us to note the tenacity of the model leader and the integrity of the model leader. First of all, the tenacity of the model leader. Notice verse 2, we had previously suffered and been insulted and fell apart, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you His gospel in spite of strong opposition. The enemies were basically saying about Paul, your ministry has been a failure. 
a failure, a flop, empty, hollow, fruitless. But actually, if you read chapter 1, you will see, no, it wasn't. In fact, the whole of the country, the whole of the continent could see it, and we're talking about it. But that didn't stop the murmurings and the character assassination. Paul is confident in the power of God, you'll notice. And we see boldness here. We dared to tell you his gospel. We dared to tell you his gospel. Tenacity, in spite of strong opposition. And this kind of focus on the gospel, this courage, in spite of strong opposition, is essential for leadership. For you men, as you join the elders in this congregation. So, Glenn and David and Lewis, do you know what? You have a very simple game plan, along with the other elders and staff here. Tell people his gospel. Tell people his gospel. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. You don't do it in your own strength because you haven't got much. You don't do it in fear because he's in you. And you don't present some kind of soft, sentimental, religious message. No compromise, no spinning of truth, no dumbing down the message. His gospel. It's always about him and his gospel. And for Paul, nothing, no one could shut him up. Nothing and no one could stop him fulfilling this mandate. And you know what? We are living in desperate days. There's no time around for us to, to mess with this work. We've got to say it clear. We've got to say it loud. We've got to say it now, in spite of strong opposition. Now, if any of us here in church tonight really want to be part of a um, a popularity team, well, we've, we've picked the wrong team. If we, if we want an easy time, again, we're going to be disappointed. If we don't want to pay a cost, well, then we're not going to be too comfortable in the church. We've got to dare to tell people the gospel. I failed Latin like I failed most things at school, but there's one phrase I love from Latin, audere est facere. hope I've pronounced it properly. Audere est facere. Does anybody know what that means? Do you need to see a man know what it means? Shame on you. <laughs> to dare is to do. Your education is almost complete. To dare is to do, the motto of the greatest football team in the whole world, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Sadly, over the last number of years, we have not dared, and therefore we haven't done very much. To dare is to do. You need that in your ministry, man. People are dying without Christ all around us. People are being told lies by the world. And people are confused by religion. So we don't stumble or mumble or fumble the message. We dare to tell it. Tenacity. Integrity, verses 3 to 6. Now, he, Paul raises three 
issues in verse 3, and then he amplifies it in verses 4 to 6. We're not going to get bogged down in the complex arguments, but it's, it's around three areas. One is the message. You'll notice there the charge that we can pick out from this verse, for the appeal we make does not spring from error. In other words, the charge was that what they said was error. That's the charge. Actually, there's no error. Nobody says there in verse 4, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Approved by God, entrusted by God, the message has to be His. So, let's stick to His message. The second area is motive in the middle of verse 3, or impure motives. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or imp impure motives. Again, brutal defamation of His ministry and His character. Actually, if truth be told, and that's what Paul's doing here, you'll notice in verse 4b, we are not trying to… Uh, sorry, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Verse 6, we were not looking for praise from men, nor, not from you or anyone else. He says, I, I, I don't try to please man, I seek to please God. Not seeking esteem or recognition or the awards of man, not them, not anyone. His motives were very clear, and so must yours. And then the methods is the third thing dealt with at the end of verse 3, nor are we trying to trick you. Again, the charge is that they were using manipulation, deceit. They were con men, Paul and his friends, using gimmicks and pressure tactics and trickery. Actually, Paul says, verse 5, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Integrity. You need tenacity to dare, but you also need integrity when it comes to your message. No error, your motives, no impurity, your methods, no trickery. The model leader has these things. But that's a very, very long introduction to what I really want to speak about, and it will not be as long as you might fear. Uh, from verse 6 to verse 12, we have five pictures of ministry activity. Five pictures, I think, of the model leader, the model elder. And a picture paints a thousand words. I think these pictures are beautiful. The first one is a gentle mother, verse 7. Well, the end of verse 6 there. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Now, I hope you men don't have a problem in getting in touch with your feminine side, you know, because you need it. If you want to understand this image of a caring, gentle mother. It's a beautiful balance between the, the daring of verse 2 and the gentle, caring mother of verse 7. We are to dare. We're to be bold. But, but that's not a, an excuse to be hard or harsh. As one commentator says, be bold with the truth. Be gentle with people. Be bold with truth. Be gentle with people. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. Now, that would have been absolutely revolutionary 
in the first century, where leadership was cruel and controlling and strong and bullying. But Paul paints a picture of biblical and spiritual leadership that was gentle. It means being kind and respectful and patient and tender-hearted. And it was the love, of course, of Jesus in his heart that, that enabled him to do this. That love of Jesus in him set the tone so that he could be bold with truth and gentle with people. That's the way Jesus did his ministry, was it not? Do you remember Jesus cleansed the temple in power and in might? That was a time when he was being bold with the truth because the glory of God, the truth of the glory of God was being abused. So, Jesus deals with it boldly. But on the other hand, he taught when someone slaps you on the cheek, what are you to do? You turn the other one. That's being gentle with people. I find that the ministry it's a lot easier to be bold with the truth, and it's a lot harder to be gentle with people. But that's the challenge. Caring, that, that's a beautiful word there, like a mother caring for her little children. It literally means to warm with body heat. Can you picture? I see a little baby here, um, well, not in his mother's arms, in his father's arms, but there we are. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a child in, in, in the arms of his or her mother. It's a vivid picture of protection and care and sheltering. There are so many hurting, lonely people who will come under your care. Man, you're to mother them. That's the challenge. You're to mother them. In fact, there are probably enough beat-up people here in our building tonight, this meeting house, who need you to mother them. Effective eldership, effective leadership flows over the bridge of warm, redemptive relationships. That's the way God treats us, of course. Isaiah 40, He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those who have young. My daughter had her firstborn, a son, Isaiah, born just before Christmas. I know you think you're too young to be a granddad, but as you can imagine, in our family, there's a queue to nurse him. I have to say, I tend to be at the end of that queue for some reason. I don't know why. I'm well down. I don't think they trust me to hold on to him without dropping him. But actually, do you know, do you know what I prefer doing than, than hold him myself, is, is to watch his mother hold him. To watch his mother hold him. That is a, a, a beautiful sight. Caring is something that a mother does powerfully and beautifully. And it comes out in me and you and us in the way the way we speak to people, our, our choice of words, the tone of our voice, the smile on our face, the style of our leadership, it affects everything 
because it can be messy. We're, we've got lots of mess around us. It's very tiring, but it's worth it. It's the picture of the model leader, a gentle mother caring. Then secondly, a, a loving teacher sharing. Verse 8, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you've become so dear to us. In other words, open lives of truth and open lives of love. Again, this is unusual for men. Perhaps that's why Paul raises it. Paul and Silas and Timothy shared these two great treasures that they had, the gospel and their lives. I think it's the model for every leader, minister, elder, or leader. Here's the question, men. How would this congregation ever know that you love them? How would they know that? When you share your doctrine and when you share your life, that's the way to show that you love them. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you've become so dear to us. That's the test of love. The gospel of God is the thing we must share. This congregation should not even have a little bit of doubt about what you men believe, what's on your heart, what you want to share with them, the gospel of God. They should never have even a hesitation in their mind about that. The exposure of the awfulness of sin and the explanation of the awesomeness of the Savior. Creation, fall, redemption, glorification is one way of doing that, isn't it? God made it good. Sin made it bad. Christ comes to fix the horror story. And we're going to see and inhabit and enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. Men, David, Glenn, Lewis, if you're going to be an elder here, a good elder, open up your heart and keep it open. And open up your mouths and keep sharing the gospel and open up your home and make it a platform for ministry. One commentator says, our willingness to give ourselves to others is often the missing link in our missional living. And I think within the Reformed Church, this is what we, we, we have a problem here. Our willingness to give ourselves to others is often the missing link in our missional living. Live and share. Also, a gentle mother caring, a loving teacher sharing, a hard worker proclaiming, verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. We already discussed in our interviews that the eldership is demanding. I think what we see here is this bivocational idea of, of work and day and night that Paul and the gang were involved in. They worked night and day. Now, it's interesting the way Paul wrote that. Maybe there's nothing in it, but I thought there might be something in it. Normally, it's the other way around. Normally, we talk about day and night, don't we? But he talks about night and day. Why would he do that? Well, perhaps he was emphasizing what they would have done at night, which would have been the ministry of the gospel, and then what they would do during the day 
with their paid employment. I think it's a bit like you, isn't it? You're still working, you guys, aren't you? Your ministry is going to be in the evening. It means toil and hardship. Verse 9, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Another sporting analogy, you would talk about they left it all out on the field. Or the marathon runner who just falls exhausted when they hit the tape. It's hard work. It can't be sugar-coated. And yet we receive so much joy and blessing in the work. So, we say to you, men, pour yourself into ministry and give your life away and toil and share God's good news. Because the eldership has been given to you as a platform in which to do this. Again, one of the commentators writes, if your eldership or leadership costs nothing, it will probably achieve or accomplish nothing. So, a gentle mother caring, a loving teacher sharing, a hard worker working proclaimer toiling. What about this next image in verse 10? A consistent model living. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Again, they set a high standard. They didn't say one thing with their mouth and then do another thing with their lives. They lived the Jesus life in front of them. Godliness, we call it. Wholeness. They practiced what they preached. And this is much more important than gifting, isn't it? Although we often elevate or emphasize gifting over godliness when it should be the other way around. People may question what we say, but they can't argue with how we live because it sticks in their memory. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. You are witnesses, he says. They saw it. Um, and so was God, a witness. God saw it. And what did they see? Three things. Holy, it means devout, real, set apart. That's the heart attitude. Holy. Righteous means the outer living. There's this link between our identity in Christ and our conduct for Christ. It's shown in the way we live righteous lives. Blameless is a third word or idea. No obvious fault can be found and pointed to. Not sinless, of course, but uh, no legitimate ground for accusation. Didn't stop the enemies accusing, but the charges couldn't stick. And that's the way we should live our lives. Pursue this lifestyle. Notice that little phrase, among you who believed in the church generally, but I get an idea that it's for the immature especially. We are to live out this model of living. Good elder, good leader, good Christian, living out consistent godliness. Lastly, we have the shepherding father leading 
verses 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who called you into his kingdom and glory. Here's the second parental metaphor. A gentle, caring mother, yes. A strong, shepherding father, also. You'll notice there in verse 11 that children need active dads, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. So we have softness and strength together. A nursing mom and an urging dad. And notice the three words that he uses there. Encouraging means to come alongside with instruction and insight. It's like what a personal trainer does. You can look at me and say, well, what would you know about a personal trainer? No, I don't. But I know, I've watched them or heard about them, what they do. They get beside you, don't they? And they encourage you. You know, not a few reps. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Take some action. Make some change. The idea is to enable someone to meet a challenging situation with confidence and with courage. That's what you're called to do, to be encouragers. The second word is comforting. This is sympathy and concern. It's softer than encouraging. The idea is to get the person to cheer up, to be positive, to be faithful. And when you bring them side by side, when things are okay, then you encourage them to go on and on and on. But when things are falling apart, you comfort them. And I suppose you just encourage them to, to hang in there. But in both instances, of course, you need to get close to the person so that you might share that. The third idea is urging. Verse 12, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who called you into His kingdom and glory. This means imploring. The idea is to admonish or warn or rebuke. Now, you three men will soon realize that leaders need to make hard decisions at times. Sometimes you need to say hard things. That's part of the calling. And sometimes we need to provide this, and sometimes we need to receive this. But the goal is what? To live lives worthy of God, Christ-likeness, not man-likeness, not self-likeness, but Christ-likeness. So we all grew up in Christ, who called you into his kingdom and glory is the last little phrase. Man, you have to have a kingdom mindset, a future-directed mindset. No fear of now, and no fear of his coming. Living for his kingdom, living for his glory. So, as we conclude uh, this evening, who is the best example of all this? Who do you think might be the great enabler to do all this? You see, I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is everything I've said tonight, you cannot do by yourself. You have no hope. The good news is Christ in you, Christ in me, enables us to do this because he's the perfect example of all these things, the ultimate, faultless, excellent example. 
daring. Daring to tell us the truth in spite of strong opposition. Who, who did that better than Jesus? Can you think of anybody whose message was just spot on, perfect, 100% right? The revelation of God? Can you think of anyone? No? Good. What about his motives? Do you think his motives were perfect and pure and faultless? What about his methods? Did he, did he use trickery or manipulation? Can you picture Jesus with the little boys and girls on his knee, showing us how a gentle mother treats little ones? Can you see him as a teacher sharing truth and his life 24-7, exhausted he was? Can you picture him proclaiming, toiling night and day? What about living as a model? Could anyone point the finger at Jesus? What about the, the shepherding dad, leading, encouraging, comforting, and urging? You see, Jesus in you, Jesus in us, will enable us to get to grips with the challenge of being what we're supposed to be and do what we're supposed to do. And you know what? It's all to him. It's all for him. It's all because of him. May Jesus reign in your hearts and use you mightily for the times that lie ahead. God bless you, men, in your ministry. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for uh, these simple but powerful pictures and images we have here of what it means to be your leader your worker, your elder, your minister, your servant, and we pray that in a very clear way that these men, David, Glenn, and Lewis, with every single other person in this building tonight, will get to grips with what it means to have Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that we will indeed be model leaders, servants, and we will serve well and lead well, and we will sacrifice that we will be like Jesus.